This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show in our favorite subject, history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading historians. At the core of his success was his belief that history is biography and that history, as he loved to say, is about people. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories thanks to those who run his estate. Ambrose wrote the definitive biography of Dwight Eisenhower. Ike was born on this day in 1890 in a small rented shack beside the railroad tracks in Denison, Texas. He was raised in a family of Mennonites, fundamentalists in their Christian faith, who were also pacifists. Here's Stephen Ambrose with the story of Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight David Eisenhower was a great and a good man. These two qualities don't always, or even often, go together. But they did with him. Obviously, that is an assertion that needs proof. Let me begin with some definitions. In 1954, President Eisenhower wrote his childhood friend, Sweet Hazlett, on the subject of greatness. He thought greatness depended either on achieving preeminence in some broad field of human thought or endeavor, or on assuming some position of great responsibility, and then so discharging his duties as to have left a marked and favorable imprint upon the future. The qualities of a great man, Eisenhower said, were wisdom, vision, integrity, courage, understanding, the power of articulation, and profundity of character. To that list, I'd personally add two others, decisiveness and luck. The qualities of goodness in a man, I believe, include a, a broad sympathy for the human condition. That is, an awareness of human weaknesses and shortcomings, and a willingness to be forgiving of them. A sense of responsibility toward others. A genuine modesty, combined with justified self-confidence. A sense of humor. And most of all, a love of life and of people. That last is the key. Eisenhower loved life and he loved people. To me, that's the heart of his character. From it flowed all the rest. In the fall of 1912, third-class cadet Dwight Eisenhower, 22 years old, was walking down a hallway at West Point when a plebe running full tilt on some fool errand for an upperclassman, ran into him, knocked him over. Reacting with what he called a bellow of astonishment and mock indignation, Eisenhower scornfully demanded, Mr. Dumgard, a generic term for a plebe, what was your PCS, previous condition of servitude? What did you do before you became a cadet? And then Eisenhower added sarcastically, you look like a barber. I was a barber, sir. It was Eisenhower's turn to go red with embarrassment. 
Without a word, he returned to his room, where he told his roommate, I'm never going to haze another plebe as long as I'm at this place. As a matter of fact, they'll have to run over and knock me out of the company street before I'll make any attempt again. I've just done something that was stupid and unforgivable. I managed to make a man ashamed of what he did to earn a living. He never hazed again. And as an adult, he never shamed a man. Respect for others. Honesty in his dealings, love of life, these were some of the basic parts of his character. From whence did they come? Nurture and nature played their respective roles in shaping Dwight Eisenhower. Physically, he inherited a strong, tough, big, athletic body and extremely good looks. With a quite fabulous grin, along with keen intelligence. He also inherited a strong competitive streak from his parents, plus a bad temper, along with unquestioning love, stern discipline, ambition, and religion. They made him study, as parents did, read the Bible aloud, do chores, hold jobs as soon as he was old enough. They instilled in him a series of controls over his emotions, his temper most of all, they gave him a solid Victorian outlook on the relations between the sexes and on proper conduct. All his life he would blush if he slipped and said a hell or a damn in front of a lady. Thus he grew up in a strong Christian atmosphere. Not a sectarian atmosphere. He said once as president that this country has to be founded on a strong religious faith, and I don't care what it is. What he meant was he didn't care if it was Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or River Brethren. <clears throat> he wants to find an atheist as someone who could watch Southern Methodists play Notre Dame and not care who won. <laughs> as president, he began attending church regularly because he felt it was important to set an example. It wasn't something that he had done earlier in his life. But the religion was always very deeply there. He began his first inaugural address with a prayer. And it went over so well, he decided to begin all of his cabinet meetings with prayers. About a year after he'd been in office, he was a half hour into a cabinet meeting when he slapped himself on the head and said, God damn it, we forgot the prayer. <laughs> From his parents, and from his experiences in Abilene, which is, after all, almost exactly in the heart of America, the lower 48, he absorbed such values as honesty and fair play in all dealings into the very marrow of his bones. He abhorred the idea of cheating or lying, and he never did either. He also absorbed a fervent attachment to democracy that amounted to a religious faith. This grew naturally in the soil of that little town out there on the Kansas prairie. And you've been listening to Stephen Ambrose tell the story of Dwight D. Eisenhower, born on this day in history in 1910, told by the person who wrote the best book on Ike. And we're talking about Stephen Ambrose. Let's return to Ambrose with more of this remarkable story. At West Point... And in his first 25 years in the Army, Eisenhower satisfied few of his ambitions. He didn't get to war in the first war, the Great War, and he was still a lieutenant colonel 
when the Second World War began and about to be forcibly retired. But he had learned his profession, and he had demonstrated another characteristic trait, patience. And it was rewarded. After Pearl Harbor, his star rose, and soon he was in Washington making war plans for Chief of Staff George Marshall, and then on to London to take command of the American forces in the European theater of operations. This threw him into the middle of the great decision-making process of the Allies at the very highest level. In London, dealing daily with Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he proved to be an outstanding diplomat and politician, not only with Churchill, but with de Gaulle and other French leaders as well. He was successful because he was true to his character. <clears throat> the situation in North Africa following the invasion in the fall of 1942 was exceedingly complicated, with a lot of false promises coming from the British, the Americans, to the various French factions, but not from Eisenhower. I know only one method of operation, he wrote in his diary, to be as honest with others as I am with myself. When President Franklin Roosevelt pressured him to get tough with the local French, Eisenhower refused, explaining my whole strength in dealing with the French has been based upon my refusal to quibble or to stoop to any kind of subterfuge or double dealing. <coughs> the French responded to this. De Gaulle told him, as long as you say that, I believe it. He was equally successful with his sometimes difficult British subordinates and his sometimes egotistical American subordinates. And he'd only mention the names of Montgomery and Patton, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they might not agree with his decisions, but they gave him their trust. Indeed, whenever his wartime associates described Eisenhower, whether they were superiors or subordinates, there was one word that almost every one of them used. It was trust. People trusted him for the most obvious and simple of reasons. He was trustworthy. General Montgomery didn't think much of Eisenhower as a soldier, but he appreciated other qualities. His real strength lies in his human qualities, Montgomery said. He has the power of drawing the hearts of men towards him as the magnet attracts the bit of metal. He merely has to smile at you, and you trust him at once. Scrupulous honesty was an integral part of Eisenhower's character and a learned experience. He saw and experienced the payoff for this trust. He knew that telling the truth was the only way to deal effectively with his problems. He also developed a technique to deliver his message. I refuse, he wrote, I refuse to put anything in diplomatic or suave terminology and carefully cultivate the manner and reputation of complete bluntness and honesty. Just a man too simple-minded to indulge in circumlocution. Thus did the Kansas farm boy approach Charles de Gaulle and Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt and so many others, and it always worked. He was the general who hated war. Some, like Patton, gloried in it, but Eisenhower could not. He signed every letter of condolence coming out of Europe for three years. A very sobering experience. He was the one who ordered the bombing and shelling of German cities. He hated doing that, too. Hated having to destroy when he wanted to build. 
but he did his duty with all his skill and energy. In 1943, his older brother Arthur sent him a newspaper clipping that stressed his mother's pacifism and the irony of her son being a general. Eisenhower wrote back to save the pacifist, I doubt whether any of them detest war as I do. They probably have not seen bodies rotting on the ground or smelled the stench of decaying human flesh. Probably they have not visited a field hospital crowded with the desperately wounded. What separates me from the pacifist is that I hate the Nazis more than I hate war. He told Mamie in a wartime letter, I think that all these trials and tribulations must come upon the world because of some great wickedness. Yet one would feel that man's mere intelligence to say nothing of his spiritual perceptions, would find some way of eliminating war. The contrast between Eisenhower and those generals who gloried in war could not have been greater. He had a very keen sense of family, of the way in which each casualty meant a grieving family back home. In 1963, when he was filming with Walter Cronkite a television special entitled D-Day Plus 20 Years, Cronkite sitting on that stone wall that looks onto that magnificent cemetery at Omaha, Cronkite asked him what he thought about when he returned to Normandy. In reply, he spoke not of the things that other generals would have brought up. He didn't speak about the tanks or the guns or the planes or the ships or the personalities of the commanders or their opponents or how he fooled the Germans or of the victory. Instead, he spoke of the families of the men buried in the American cemetery. He said he could never come to this spot without thinking of how blessed he and Mamie were to have grandchildren and how much it saddened him to think of all the couples in America who had never had that blessing because their only son was buried here. So far, he looks like a saint. But he was a healthy, vigorous man in his early 50s during the war. And men at war are notoriously receptive to female charm when they are far from home and close to danger. For many people, the test of character is the marriage vow. In other words, what about Kay Summersby? <laughs> Kay was Ike's personal secretary and sometime driver. She was young enough to be his daughter, very attractive, with a bubbly personality that Churchill and almost everyone else found charming. She had lost her fiancé in North Africa and had fallen in love with her boss. For his part, how could he help but be responsive? He liked her enormously, probably had a crush on her. They were always together, but almost never alone. Decades later, in a book published after her death, Kay claimed that they had fallen in love and that both had realized it in January 1944 when he returned to England from a short visit to Washington. They had their only evening together alone. There was a fireplace. They sat on the floor. His kisses absolutely unraveled me, Kay wrote. According to her account, it was a passionate but unconsummated experience because after they took off each other's clothes, Eisenhower was flaccid. This may have been because, as one aide put it in a grand understatement, he had a lot on his mind.
More likely, it seems to me, his stern sense of morality, character, and honesty overrode his passion. He was incapable of cheating on his wife. Or it may be that the incident never happened. That it was merely an old woman's fantasy. No one will ever know. What is important to note is that not even Kay ever claimed that they had a genuine love affair. Nor is it true that Eisenhower asked President Harry Truman for permission to divorce his wife in order to marry Kay. Which was always a ridiculous story to begin with because he was a five-star general. They don't ask anybody's permission to do anything. <laughs> what he did ask Truman for was permission to have Mamie join him in occupied Germany. Throughout the war, when Kay was with him always, his love for Mamie was constant. His sustaining force was the thought that when the war was over, he and Mamie could live together again. He loved Mamie for half a century. Except when he was off at war, they slept in the same bed for 50 years. And you've been listening to the voice of Stephen Ambrose. And I love the line that he gave to his own family member about pacifism. And he said, what separates me from the pacifists is that I hate the Nazis more than I hate war. And you couldn't say it better. And that word trust, that's what he had, that's what he engendered, his personality. Maybe not the greatest battle mind, um, but boy, he knew how to marshal the best and put them in the right places. Dwight Eisenhower, born on this day in history in 1910. Let's return to the story. But, loving Mamie did not necessarily preclude loving Kay. Or at least loving her under the special situation in which they lived from the summer of 1942 to the spring of 1945. He was lucky to have her around. And the Allies were lucky she was there. The best advice in attempting to pass any judgment on the Eisenhower-Summersby relationship was given by one of Eisenhower's staff officers to an office gossip back in 1943. Leave Kay and Ike alone. She's helping him win the war. In 1939, when it looked like he might be forcibly retired as a lieutenant colonel, his son John had asked him if he regretted having spent his career in the Army. Not at all, Eisenhower replied. He said he had found his life in the Army wonderfully interesting. It brought me into contact with men of ability, honor, and a sense of high dedication to their country. The real satisfaction for a man is to do the best he can. My ambition in the Army was to make everybody I worked for regretful when I was ordered to other duty. Leadership was another part of his character. He was born to lead. And he was trained to lead. He told John once, that leadership was the one art that could be learned. But of course, only the born leader can say that. Eisenhower reinforced his natural talent. He studied the subject of leadership intensely. And he wrote some of his best analytical material on the subject. An important part of leadership for Eisenhower rested on certain matters of character. These included modesty and a genuine eagerness to share the applause. Thus, through the war, he never forgot how much he was dependent on others. Thus, through the war, when reporters came to him, he would say, go see Bradley, go see Patton, get your story there. They're the ones that are winning this war for us. <laughs> Sharing the credit for a success 
and taking the personal blame for what went wrong was Eisenhower's leadership style. In all the announcements of D-Day, the operative words were the Allies, or we. In the announcement Eisenhower wrote by hand, to release to the press in the event of failure, the operative word was I, as in, it's all my fault. Always take your job seriously, never yourself, was one of his favorite lines. A corollary to that sentiment was his willingness to sacrifice himself for the good of the whole. In early 1944, Eisenhower wanted to put the Allied bombers to work on transportation targets in France in order to isolate Normandy. The bomber commanders said no. They wanted to continue the strategic bombing campaign inside Germany. Eisenhower felt so strongly about the issue that he told the combined chiefs of staff that either they gave him his transportation targets, railroads and turntables and marshalling yards and bridges and the like, in France, or I'm simply going to have to go home. In other words, Eisenhower was not ready to commit his forces to the attack until he was certain that he had utilized every asset he had to the uttermost. If he couldn't use the assets as he saw fit, he would resign his commission. When he made the threat, he was holding the most coveted command in the history of warfare. He got his way, and the transportation plan was a big success. He later used the same threat in a knockdown dispute with Montgomery over strategy and command, and he again had his way. It was an integral part of him, this ability to know exactly when to use his personal asset, the power of his name, to make the ultimate threat. It showed a nice sense of balance about political factors and an accurate measurement of his own strength in a struggle over policy. He much preferred working with the team to having to act on his own. A stress on teamwork began when he was a child, showed again at West Point, and was reinforced by his experiences as a football coach on various Army bases in the 1920s. By 1952, the year Eisenhower entered into politics at age 62, his character as formed by heredity and experience was set in cement. It included, as I have said, the qualities of love, honesty, faithfulness, responsibility, modesty, generosity, duty, and leadership, along with a hatred of war. These were bedrock. Or were they? This paragon of virtue I am describing had lived in the shelter of the army nearly all of his life. Character testing opportunities or temptations were almost unknown to him. It's easy to be virtuous when virtue is rewarded. And this will be a hard sell to many veterans in here, but it usually is in the Army. It's not so easy to be virtuous when virtue is ignored and partisanship is rewarded, as in politics. He grew up in the Army, and he swore like a sergeant. Although the words he used were never sexual or had anything to do with anatomy, they were always Christ and damn and God and words like that. Once he was at a luncheon with some cabinet members during the 56 re-election campaign and someone said something about somebody proposing something and Eisenhower snorted, these damned amateurs. 
He said, you know, there's only, in all the world, there's only two places where amateurs think that they're better than the professionals. Military strategy and prostitution. <laughs> now this was an all-male luncheon. And having said that, he blushed and confessed a bit shamefacedly, that's the only off-color story I know. Where his character showed most decisively was on questions of war. And more specifically, a first strike against the Soviet Union or in Asia. He was president during the worst decade of the Cold War. He was the only president to have a decisive lead over the Soviets in nuclear weapons. A lead so decisive that he could have ordered a preventative war which, had a, which would have destroyed the Soviet Union as a military power and they would have been unable to retaliate. Given the amounts of money the United States was spending in the arms race and the fear it engendered and the fact that the Soviets would soon be able to retaliate and eventually might pull even in nuclear weaponry, the temptation to use the bomb while we still had the lead was tremendous. At the time of Dien Bien Phu in 1954, during the various crises over the Chinese offshore islands in the mid-50s, and regularly with regard to the Soviet Union, some of Eisenhower's principal advisors gave in to that temptation. These included his Joint Chiefs of Staff, his Vice President, his Secretary of State, members of his National Security Council, and many pundits. Told on May 1, 1954, that the National Security Council was preparing a paper calling for the use of atomic bombs to save the French at Dien Bien Phu, Eisenhower responded, I certainly do not think that the atom bomb can be used by the United States unilaterally. He then went on to get to the heart of the matter. You boys must be crazy. We can't use those awful things against Asians for the second time in less than 10 years, my God. And you're listening to Stephen Ambrose recounting many of the stories he told in his definitive biography of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I love a few of the things he said about Ike's leadership style, and this the most important, sharing the credit for success and taking the blame for what went wrong was his leadership style. And this quote perhaps best states his character, always take your job seriously, not yourself. Ike was born on this day, in 1890, in a small rented shack beside the railroad tracks in Denison, Texas. Let's return to the story. It was characteristic of him always to ask, what happens next? If we do such and so, what are the likely consequences? Suppose we do pull it off, then what? And what do the other players do? It was an attempt to look into the future, and it stood him in good stead as president. After Dien Bien Phu fell, the Joint Chiefs recommended a preventative attack against the Soviet Union. Eisenhower asked them to think about what they were proposing. I want you to carry this question home with you. Gain such a victory, and what are you going to do with it? Here would be a great area from the Elba River all the way to Vladivostok, just torn up and destroyed without government, without its communications, just an area of starvation and disaster. I ask you, what would the civilized world do about it? I repeat, there is no victory except in your imagination. Another quality was patience. Make no mistakes in a hurry. 
was a favorite axiom of his. When advisors urged him to destroy the Soviet Union while we could still get away with it, he told them to be patient. That in the end, the Soviet system would implode because it was rotten at its core. That this would take a long time, maybe as long as 50 years. But they would have to educate their own people in order to stay up with modern technology. And when they did, they would sow the seeds of their own undoing. He was a good steward. In his farewell address, he pointed out, we, you and I, our government, must avoid plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. And then he uttered what, of all his lines, is my all-time favorite. He said, we want democracy to survive for all ages to come. That faith in democracy was total, even after five years of dealing with Congress. In 1957, he told Swede, each congressman thinks of himself as intensely patriotic. But it does not take the average member long to conclude that his first duty to his country is to get himself reelected. This leads to a capacity for rationalization that is beyond belief. It was characteristic of him to seek compromise. Extremes to the right and to the left of any political dispute are always wrong. He liked to say. The Democrats controlled Congress for six of his eight years in office. He got on with them smoothly. A brief assessment of his accomplishments as president reveals something more of the man and his character. First and foremost, he presided over eight years of prosperity, marred only by two minor recessions. By later standards, it was a period of nearly full employment. The average unemployment rate in the 50s was 4%. And no inflation. The average inflation rate in the 1950s was 1.5% a year, about which he worried awfully. There was a 4% rise in real wages each year for blue-collar workers. Indeed, by almost every standard, GNP, personal income and savings, home buying, auto purchases, capital investment, highway construction, and so forth, it was the best decade of the century. Shirley Eisenhower's fiscal policies, his refusal to cut taxes or increase defense spending, his insistence on a balanced budget played some role in creating this happy situation. His special triumphs came in the field of foreign affairs and were directly, directly related to his character. By making peace in Korea five months after taking office and avoiding war thereafter and by holding down the cost of the arms race, he achieved greatness. No one knows how much money he saved the United States. No one knows how many lives he saved by ending the war in Korea and refusing to enter any others, despite a half dozen and more virtually unanimous recommendations to do so. Dien Bien Phu, Kamoi Matsu, many others. But he made peace and he kept the peace. Whether any other man could have led the country through that decade without going to war cannot be known. What we do know is that Eisenhower did it. Eisenhower seldom boasted, but he did on this one.
The United States never lost a soldier or a foot of ground in my administration, he said. We kept the peace. People ask how it happened. By God, it didn't just happen, I'll tell you that. His magnetic appeal to millions of his fellow citizens seemed to come about as a natural and effortless result of his sunny disposition. But he worked at his apparent artlessness. That big grin and bouncy step often masked depression, doubt, or utter weariness. He believed it was the critical duty of a leader to always exude optimism. He made it a habit to save all of his doubts for his pillow. For 40 years, he chain-smoked cigarettes, four packs a day. At age 58, he quit cold turkey, and he never again touched tobacco. Clearly, he was a man of tremendous willpower. Although at the Paris summit, the abortive Paris summit in May of 1960, when Khrushchev was going on and on about Francis Gary Powers and the U-2 and demanding an apology and pounding the table and so on, Eisenhower scribbled on the back of his memo pad, God, I wish I had a cigarette. <laughs> he used that tremendous willpower to conquer his own most negative characteristic, an awful temper. When he got mad, it just everybody knew immediately. His face just lit up, beat red, and, and the tension in his body was a palpable thing that could be felt all through the room. His aides lived in terror of those moments of outbreak of his temper. Now, anger that is contrived, that is put on for show and a purpose, an actor's anger, can be an effective tool of leadership. It was one Eisenhower often used. But genuine anger, Deep, blind anger is the enemy of leadership. Eisenhower often felt it with Montgomery, with McCarthy, with others, but he never acted on it. One way he controlled his anger was to do his best to follow his own rule, never question another man's motives. His wisdom, yes, but not his motives. He also tried to always assume the best about others until shown otherwise. He could do so consistently even in a world full of high-powered men whose motives were often self-serving or base because of this most outstanding personal characteristic of his, his love for life and for people. No one ever caught this better than Richard Nixon, who observed on the day Eisenhower died in 1969 that everybody loved Ike because Ike loved everybody. Nixon went on to confess that he could scarcely believe such a thing was possible. <laughs> because he said, in my experience, most politicians are men with very strong hatreds. Well, Lord knows that Nixon was a man full of such feelings. And a man who always questioned the other guy's motives. But as for Eisenhower, the only man he ever really hated was Adolf Hitler. He was the general who hated war, but who hated the Nazis more. He was old-fashioned, a Victorian who came to power in the mid-20th century. His virtues were those of the 19th century. Honesty, 
integrity, and religious devotion and conviction were some of them. To my knowledge, he never lied in his private life. Not once. In his public responsibilities, he lied twice. Once in 1944 to Hitler about where he was going to invade. <laughs> and once again on May Day, 1960, to Khrushchev about what Francis Gary Powers was doing in that U-2 over the Soviet Union. In my own life, when I'm faced with a moral question or a dilemma or a personal problem of choice, I'm in the habit of asking myself, what would I do? Sad to relate, I often, even usually, perhaps always, come up short of his standards. My only consolation is that so do most of the men I know or whose lives I have studied. And you've been listening to Stephen Ambrose and what storytelling. A special thanks to the estate, also to Greg Hengler for pulling that all together. And my goodness, the stories and the part about patience. And my dad had this book on my nightstand. My dad loved Eisenhower so much he went to Gettysburg College because that's where Ike lived. So he could just see the old man. But the word patience was one my dad always circled around. Make no mistakes in a hurry. But what I most remember about this story is Ike going back to memorialize D-Day. And what he talked about weren't the generals, weren't the tanks, weren't the numbers. It was the boys, and particularly the families that lost an only son. And that, of course, is the story of my family. My mother's father lost their only son. And that was... uh, Something Ike understood the gravity of that. The story of Dwight D. Eisenhower, born on this day in history in 1910. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. During John Wooden's 27 years at UCLA, he coached the Bruins to four undefeated seasons and a record 10 national championships. He was the first person inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame, both as a player and as a coach. And the NCAA and ESPN both named him the greatest coach of the 20th century. The story we are about to hear from Greg Hengler is told by John Wooden himself, his family, friends, and his players. And we're telling it because on this day in 1910, John Wooden was born. I grew up uh, at Sutter, about eight miles north of Martinsville, and we lived on a farm there. And But I think the person <clears throat> probably had most in, influence on me uh, throughout were my mother and father, and particularly my father. He said, there's always time for play. That's uh, after the chores and the studies are done, of course. He, he read to us every night. Uh, we didn't have electricity or running water or anything on the farm. And he would read uh, poetry and scriptures to us every night. I had three brothers. Uh, I had two sisters. I, I never really got to know them. They died early. Just being born in Indiana in those years, and any young, young fellow is going to be interested in basketball. It's just the natural thing. Dad tacked up uh, an old tomato basket, and um, Mother 
uh, took an old cotton sock and filled it with rags, making it as round as, uh, as possibly could, and that's where I first started. I went to grade school there at Centerton. My father, I think, is a man for whom the word gentleman was coined because he truly was a gentleman. Something that he gave me when I graduated from a small country grade school at Centerton it was a little card that had a creed of seven points. The first one was, be true to yourself. The next point was, make each day your masterpiece. The third one was, help others. The fourth one was, make friendship a fine art. Another one was, build a shelter against a rainy day. Another one was, drink deeply from good books. Most important, the good book. And then the last point in this creed was, every day and every evening, pray for guidance and give thanks for your blessings. My first year in high school commuted on the inner urban that ran from uh, Indianapolis to Martinsville. And then uh, we lost the farm after my uh, uh, freshman year, and we moved into Martinsville. I met uh, the young lady, the only girl with whom I ever went with. Here's John's daughter, Nancy. My dad was very, very shy, worked on the farm. My mother was a city girl from Martinsville. She came out with some friends that had a car, and uh, he was working in the field, and he wouldn't come over to the uh, car. They kept motioning him over, and he was plowing and he said he was dirty and sweaty and his overalls. And then when school started again, uh, my mother made a beeline for him and said, you know, why didn't you come over? And he said, I wasn't cleaned up and, and uh, I was ashamed. And she said, you know, John Bob, that's what she called him until they were in their 30s, uh, he said, I would never be ashamed of you. And he knew right then that that was for him. In 1924, Martinsville built Indiana's largest high school gymnasium. It sat 5,228, 428 more than the population of the town. During basketball season, coach Glenn Curtis established a policy of no dating and home by 8 p.m. for his players. Nellie countered by joining the pep band. Before every game, John winked at Nellie seated with her bandmates. She gave him an okay sign, and he waved back at her. It was the beginning of a pre-game ritual that would last for half a century. While playing for legendary coach Ward Piggy Lambert at Purdue, John was a three-time All-American and won a national championship. After his senior season, John played a few professional basketball games for the Chicago Bruins. This was 25 years before the NBA but was hesitant about their lucrative offers to play full-time. He sought advice from his coach at Purdue. When I uh, graduated from Purdue, I was offered a lot of money uh, in those days, a lot of money to play uh, semi-pro basketball with a, a traveling team. It'd just be traveling around all over, playing games, and it was a lot of money, and I talked to Mr. Lambert, my coach, Piggy Lambert was a man of as high principles as anyone I've ever known. Very, very high principles. Told him about this. Oh, he says, that's a lot of money. And I, yes, yes. And he said, uh, you going to take it? Oh, I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, 
what'd you come to Purdue for? I said, to get an education, I think. Did you get it? And I said, well, I hope so. Well, he said, I wouldn't throw it away if I were you, but you something you have to do yourself. But remember this, you can't play in dirt and not get dirty. Two days before John and Nellie's wedding, a bank failure claimed John's life savings of $909.25. Here's John and daughter Nancy. Nellie and I were married in Indianapolis uh, uh, on August the 8th, 1932, and my brother and his girlfriend who had a car drove us up and then they left. My mother was very outgoing. My dad was very, very shy and she encouraged him in high school to take a public speaking course because he just kind of always had his head down. And I think she was very instrumental in getting him to become less shy with people. They were totally opposite, so I think that's always a big attraction. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but in this case, it worked beautifully. A few weeks after their wedding, Nellie and John moved to Dayton, Kentucky where he had taken a job as a high school English teacher, athletic director, and head coach of three sports, including football, which he had never played. When one surly player challenged Coach Wooden's authority, a brief physical altercation followed. John was immediately ashamed. John rehired the former football coach and turned all of his attention to basketball. And what a story we're hearing, John Wooden's story and from all the key people in his life, and from John himself. And I love what he said about his most important influence in his life, and he said it was his mother and his father. There was always time to play, he said, but always, of course, after study was done, and chores. A father read to me every night, he said, poetry and scripture. Let's return to Greg Hangler's story of Coach John Wooden, who was born on this day in 1910. Nancy Ann Wooden arrived in March of 1934, but after two years in Dayton, John, Nellie, and Nancy moved to a new opportunity in South Bend, Indiana. I don't think South Bend knew whether I'd be a good English teacher or not. Uh, uh, they hoped from my background that I could maybe be a pretty good basketball and baseball coach. I wanted to be the best English teacher. I ran across a couple of things that made an impression on me. One of them is no written word no oral plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. That made an impression on me. John's school year was filled with teaching, coaching, and playing professional games on the weekends. But when America entered World War II in 1941, everything changed. Here's John and Nancy. I enlisted, and probably the, uh, probably the, the major disagreement that my dear wife and I had in all our years was that she, she didn't think I should have. She was upset because Daddy enlisted without, and they always talked everything over, but in this particular thing, um, at this particular time, he just wanted to do that. Um, I said, so his son would never have to. And I can remember being very frightened. In the aftermath of World War II, many young men went to college. John went back to his job in South Bend, but then his former high school coach, Glenn Curtis, recommended him for the head coaching position at Indiana State. After 11 years as a high school basketball coach, John and Nellie moved to Terre Haute in the summer of 1946. When Wooden held tryouts in October, the gymnasium overflowed with candidates. 
The team's record during the first season earned them an invitation to the NAIB tournament in Kansas City. That is, as long as they didn't bring Clarence Walker, the only black man on the team, Coach Wooden said his team would not play. Here's Kevin Walker and Indiana State players. My father's name was Clarence Jordan Walker, and his connection with John Wooden was he was a basketball player at Indiana State. Through the years of growing up, uh, my father really never talked much about his days uh, in college. However, it's this one day I was a senior in high school and we lost our regional championship basketball game. I was a little distraught about it, of course, and um, my father came up to me, he said, I got something I want you to see. And it was more of a, of a diary that he kept on himself and the Indiana State basketball team and everything that they went through, everywhere that they had to go, where he could play, where he couldn't play, even to the point to places that he could not even go. And I started asking him questions about it. He would just say, you know, this is how it was back then. Every day was a different day and every day has its own trouble. Well, John Wooden, from me reading that portion of the diary, told me about his character and his uh, Christian discipleship, actually, where he would, if we don't take the whole, we're not going at all. And what I mean by the whole, his team, that was like his family, and not one was greater than the other. When you became associated with Coach Wooden, why you were gonna be one of his family. He's one of my boys. He would say, no, we're not coming. We didn't see color. None of Wooden's teams ever saw color. We would stop at a restaurant uh, along the way, and uh, somebody would, uh, would refuse to, uh, to allow him to eat with us. And the manager says, we don't feed people like this. So we all decided to leave, that's what we did. I think the only thing that uh, really kept his mind straight was his family and uh, his faith in God. He was a God-fearing man, taught us and instilled Christian discipleship and stewardship within us as a family. Probably the most significant uh, was just his desire to show all men are created equal. The next year, the league changed the policy and Clarence Walker traveled with the team to Kansas City. There, he became the first black man to play in a postseason National Collegiate Basketball Tournament. Wherever John went, his wife was always beside him. Here's a couple of Indiana State players and John's daughter, Nancy. She was a pretty lady, feisty. I think she was a feisty little Irish girl. Feisty is a good word for her. Coach Wooden said that Nellie was the most important thing in his life, and he feels that he would not have been anything without, without Nellie. I'm asked many times um, about my family and growing up, and I continue to think and feel and say that I wish everyone would be as fortunate as I was to grow up in a, a family where my mother and dad loved each other, and loved my brother Jim and I. For many years, John Wooden had been contemplating the nature of success. 
I wanted to uh, come up with a different uh, uh, definition of success than, than Mr. Webster. I wanted to be more than just the material possessions or prestige. And my dad, I remembered, he tried to teach us that uh, never cease trying to do the best you can do at whatever it is. And uh, I'd more or less forgotten that. Uh, probably it went in one ear and out the other in that time. And then I read a, a short verse that said, At God's footstool to confess, a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. The master said, Thou didst thy best. That is success. From those, I coined my own definition of success in 1934. I choose to define it as peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction in knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. And you're the only one that knows that, you know. Nobody else knows it. You, you, you can fool others, but you can't fool yourself. And it's like character and reputation. Your character, you're, you're the only one that knows your character. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be by others, but your character is what you really are. Coach Wooden developed a teaching tool called the Pyramid of Success. It was not just for his players, but a goal for him to pursue as well. Coach Wooden's record at Indiana State caught the attention of several large universities, including the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers and the UCLA Bruins. John and Nellie's first choice was Minnesota, and he was ready to accept their promised offer. But their phone call was delayed by a snowstorm in Minneapolis. Here's John's colleague and friend, Tom Osborne. Somehow because of a communication issue, their offer got to him late, and he'd already told the people at UCLA he would go, when he probably would have preferred to go to Minnesota because in the Midwest. And, uh, but he said, well, once he had given his word, that was it. So he went to UCLA, and, and uh, you wonder in today's culture how many coaches would do that. At UCLA, football was king. The basketball team had a losing record. They shared the space with the gymnastics team and its seating was half the capacity of John Wooden's high school. But John Wooden focused on his opportunity. He told the Los Angeles Daily News, no team is going to outrun or out-hustle the Bruins this season. Slated to finish last, UCLA captured the division championship in 1949. Here's UCLA players Keith Erickson, Marcus Johnson, Doug McIntosh, and daughter Nancy. Even though I grew up in a little city called El Segundo, not too far from here, um, my horizons weren't real broad, so I had never even seen UCLA play. I had never heard about Coach Wooden. He was just another coach when I got here, and nice, nice little guy, and uh, ran a pretty tight ship, and I was happy to be here. He really taught us uh, the, the basics in every facet of the game, it started with putting on your socks. And it's funny because I have a 12-year-old that I, <laughs> I just had to, you know, re-instruct for the 20th time on how to tie his shoe. You know, his, his shoes always come loose during the game. Dude, dude, tie your shoes up. So he started just tying them haphazardly. I said, no, no, no. You got to start at the bottom, pull each shoestring up two at a time, tight, 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 all the way to the top. And I thought about that. I didn't say it to him, but that's the way Coach Wooden taught us. And you're hearing so many people Coach Wooden knew tell the story of Coach Wooden and you're hearing Coach Wooden himself. We love to do this, folks, to bring stories like that to you. And my goodness, it's so true that Nellie, Coach's wife, played such a central part in his life. 
and it all started back in that field when he didn't come up to the girls and then she asked him why he said he felt ashamed and she said I would never be ashamed of you and that was it and let's return to Greg Hangler's story of coach John Wooden who was born on this day in 1910 here again is Keith Erickson coach Wooden did all of his work during the week his canvas was teaching us during the week and he loved that time of practice. He was a guy who always felt, I think, that we were inclined to coddle ourselves and make it easy on ourselves. And so he wanted to push us to excellence. He prepared two hours every morning or two and a half hours for our two and a half hour practice every afternoon. We did things like uh, imaginary shooting drills where, you, where, where, where you'd have an imaginary basketball and you'd shoot the ball, this imaginary ball, and work on your form, work on your, your follow through and, and your rotation. And you had to see the ball kind of going through the hoop. So whistle would blow, we'd shoot. Whistle would blow, we'd shoot this imaginary ball. <laughs> and coach was, you know, he was into it like it was a real ball. You know, just make sure you hold it here and make sure you get the rotation. You got to put your finger right on the hole here and, and go through the whole thing. But, you know, in my mind, I want to say, coach, but there's no ball. I don't know what you, what the, there's no ball. His concern was always to get the maximum out of what we had to work with. You can't, you can't put in what God left out, but you can, you can seek to at least maximize what God put in. And then when we got to the games, uh, we would meet beforehand. He would tell us, uh, you know, just to do our best, play together. And then he would sit down on the bench and we would play. Usually he had his program folded up in one hand and I had his cross in his other hand that, uh, and I only found this out in later years, but our minister um, from the First Christian Church in uh, South Bend gave it to Daddy when he um, went into the service. Uh, and it was very unusual, it had the uh, Alpha and the Omega on it. And he had his little ritual before the games, of course, you know, kind of pull up his socks and pat his assistant and then turn around and look at Mother and she gave him the high sign. And from then on, it was up to his team. In 1963, John Wooden made some changes that brought dramatic results. Here again is Keith Erickson and Doug McIntosh. In 64, we were not considered to be a serious threat even to win the conference. We were playing Duke, which was a considerably larger team physically than we were. And we were underdogs in the finals. After 29 straight wins, we were still underdogs. But uh, we played a game, the, the same kind of game we played all year. We wore them out in the middle of the game. We had a run, and that's what won our ball games for us. Coach Wooden always told us, never get too high and never get too low. And uh, after the championship, uh, he was right there. The fact that we won the whole thing was, you know, that was a goal of his. And he was very happy to, to have that goal, but he was excited that we had done as well as we could. That's what he always preached and taught, you know, to be a team, to play together, and to be the best that you could be. The next year, UCLA repeated as national champions, setting forth what would become the greatest dynasty in college sports. Wooden became known as the Wizard of Westwood, yet the only magic he ever relied on was his faith and common sense. During the following decade, the Bruins dominated college basketball. Here's Coach Wooden and UCLA great Bill Walton telling the haircut story. Bill Walton was an unusual person in so many ways. He wasn't a rebel, as some people have called him, however. 
He was just uh, one of those in the uh, 60s of the uh, anti-establishment. As far as basketball, you couldn't have a finer person on your team than Bill Walton. But between practices, I had concerns. I thought I was free, free, free at last when I left home to go to UCLA. And here we were in the age of Nixon and Vietnam and Watergate and rock and roll exploding on the scene. And I thought I was just going to be up there totally on my own having the time of my life. But then there was Coach Wooden standing right there on the steps saying, come right on in here, young man. You're mine for the next four years. He um, knew that I had certain rules, uh, such as uh, and I didn't permit an extra long hair and uh, beards. We had one period between games of about 10 days, and he didn't shave. And it didn't look very good. He said to me after, Coach, can I talk to you? And I said, certainly, uh, privately. And I said, you can talk before Ducky. That was our trainer and assistant. And he said, well, I just wasn't going to shave. Oh, I said, yes, I'd heard that, Bill. Hadn't been, you'd bandied that around, and it got around that you weren't going to shave. And do uh, you believe in this strong? Oh, yes, yes, I believe in it very strongly. And I said, I have great respect and admiration for people who stand up for the things they, in which they believe. I do, Bill, and we're going to miss you. <laughs> <laughs> and he stood there for a minute and said, I'll shave. <laughs> I fought with Coach Wooden over these incredibly meaningless things. At the time, I thought they were the most important things in the world. I've got a saying on my desk from Coach Wooden at home, it's the things we learn after we know it all that really count in our lives. Those lessons in life are truly the greatest ones. I believe one of the greatest motivating things we have is the pat on the back. I think we all like that. Now, I know that sometimes the pat has to be a little lower and a little harder, but I still believe that the pat on the back, uh, pray, everybody likes praise. If, if I ask you here, if, if raise your hand if you like praise, if every hand didn't go up, I think there's some liars in here <laughs> because I think everyone uh, likes praise. And, and uh, I, think that, I think most people like to live up to expectations. They like to live up to the expectations. And not other, not all, all of them have the poise to do that. But I think everyone really likes, you, you, you'd like to please people. You don't like to displease people in anything. And I think most, most people are that way. And I think the greatest motivating factor to get him to do that is the pat on the back. Not necessarily physically, just a word, maybe a smile, maybe a nod. And I think that's the greatest motivating factor we have. In December 1972, Coach Wooden suffered a mild heart attack. At the end of that season, UCLA won its seventh consecutive national title. No team had ever won more than four and was riding a 75-game winning streak. In January 1974, a one-point loss ended UCLA's 88-game winning streak. At the NCAA semifinals, North Carolina State defeated the Bruins 80-77 in double overtime. John Wooden struggled as never before with the pressure of success. If you're in this type of profession, when you're in the public eye, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have praise, you're going to have criticism. Some of it's going to be deserved and some of, the, some of it isn't. But your strength, now I don't care whether you're a teacher, a surgeon or whatever you are, your strength depends on how you react to both uh, praise and criticism. You can't let either one affect you. I first heard this at an FCA 
conference in Estes Park, Colorado in the early years of the FCA. This crowd on earth, they soon forget. The heroes of the past, they cheer like mad until you fall. And that's how long you last. But God, he never does forget. And in his hall of fame, by just believing in his son, inscribed, you'll find your name. I tell you, friends, I would not trade my name, however small, inscribed up there beyond the stars in that celestial hall for any famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. Wouldn't we all? And you've been listening to John Wooden. And my goodness, just hearing those words, hearing that story about Bill Walton and so much today you hear in current events and in the news about the kids being the leaders of the teams and the coaches doing whatever the kids say. And we all know that doesn't make sense. And there were turbulent times then. Bill Walton had every right to grow his beard and speak out against the war, and and coach encouraged him, but there were rules for the team, and the coach was in charge. And Bill understood that, and he loved coach for that. Let's return to Greg Hengler with more of John Wooden's story. After almost 40 years of coaching, retirement was on the horizon for John Wooden, but nobody knew for sure when, not even Coach Wooden, until one Saturday night in 1975, after defeating Louisville in overtime at the NCAA semifinals in San Diego. When the game ended, instead of going to meet the press as he usually did, John Wooden made his way to the UCLA locker room. Here's Marcus Johnson. Coach Wooden comes in and just kind of tells us to, you know, pipe down, you know, quiet, quiet, quiet. I got something to say to you guys. And so he came in and talked about um, how he was happy with the job that we we had done and and we had played a great game and that he had uh, been thinking about this a long time and, and had come to the conclusion that the next game, that Monday night, the championship game would be his last game and that he was uh, going to retire and uh, get out of coaching. You know, everybody felt like they had been kind of punched in the chest. He told us that and uh, walked out and Andre McCarter, who was the captain of that team, was kind of our spiritual compass in terms of how he looked at things. And he pulled us all together and it's like, guys, look, you know, there's no way that we're going to let Coach Wooden not go out a national champion. You know, there's just no way that's going to happen. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's no way we're going to let that happen. UCLA beat Kentucky 92 to 85. In retirement, Coach Wooden's speaking engagements and basketball camps for young players kept him busy. And of course, his theme at these events was always the pyramid of success, his teaching tool of universal truths to help people reach their full potential. Here's Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the coach. He made basketball fun. I mean, he made basketball fun, he made life fun. It was never a drag. Coach Wooden was cool because he, he got us up to a very sharp edge but he never was like, I, I think of a guy running a dog sled team, you know, he, and he, he never had to do that, you know. He's very calm. His leadership was very calm, and we were very focused, and we'd go out there and tear people apart, but it wasn't a whole lot of wild passion to it. 
passion. Passion is temporary. It doesn't last long. Love is enduring. And that's the important thing. If we all had love in our lives, the degree that we should have, oh, it would be much happier. I, I like a little poem. Uh, it says, uh, a bell isn't a bell until you ring it. A song isn't a song until you sing it. And the love that is in us wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. That's the important thing, most important word in our dictionary. Things went in the order of Nell, his kids, and then basketball. And he was maybe fifth. We're talking about a very selfless man. We always knew how important his family was to him, his uh, son and daughter and their kids. A lot of love and support, and it was obvious to us that family unit really supported him, and that was all the approval he really needed. Nellie passed at age 73 on March 21st, 1985. I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate. Uh, Nellie was my high school sweetheart. She's the only girl I ever dated. And, uh, we had 53 wonderful years together before uh, I, I lost her. But she was so cooperative in every way. And I, I think we, we need help to, to help you um, do what you're capable of doing. She was uh, um, um, she was great. For the next two decades, on the 21st day of every month, John wrote a love letter to Nellie. Every year brought new honors and awards to Coach Wooden. He received each one graciously, while keeping in mind a favorite saying, Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be thankful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. Today is the only important day of your life. Yesterday's gone. It'll never change. Tomorrow can only be affected by what you do in preparation today, and failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Um, my favorite poet is me. I'm a rhymer. I'll give you one that I wrote recently if you'd like to hear it. The years have left their imprint on my hands and on my face. Erect no longer is my walk, and slower is my pace. But there is no fear within my heart. Because I'm growing old, I only wish I had more time to better serve my Lord. When I've gone to him in prayer, he has brought me inner peace. And soon my cares and worries and other problems cease. He's helped me in so many ways, he's never let me down. Why should I fear the future when soon I could be near his crown? Though I know down here my time is short, there is endless time up there and he will forgive and keep me ever in his loving care. I'm a rhymer. That's a rhyme. <laughs> Not so. John Wooden met his maker on June 4th, 2010. He was 99 years old. Let's finish the story with Keith Erickson speaking at John Wooden's memorial service on UCLA's campus. Here's what I remember about Coach Wooden. The kind of a man he was. He was honest, he was wise, he was humble, he was fun. He was kind, he was gentle, he was a man of faith, he was a man of the Bible. And I repeat to you what he told me, that Jesus was the Lord of his life. 
On the 21st of the month, the best man I know will do what he always does on the 21st of the month. He'll sit down and pen a love letter to his only girl. He'll say how much he misses her and loves her and can't wait to see her again. Then he'll fold it once, slide it in a little envelope, and walk into his bedroom. He'll go to the stack of love letters sitting there on her pillow, untie the yellow ribbon, place the new one on top, tie the ribbon again. There's nev never been another coach like Coach Wooden. Quiet as an April snow, square as a game of checkers, loyal to one woman, one school, one way, walking around campus in his sensible shoes and Jimmy Stewart morals. He'd spend a half hour the first day of practice teaching his players how to put on a sock. Wrinkles can lead to blisters, he'd warn. Players would sneak looks at one another, roll their eyes. Eventually they'd do it right, good, he'd say, and now the other foot. <laughs> Discipline yourself, and others won't need to, coach would say. Never lie, never cheat never steal, and earn the right to be proud and confident. If you played for him, you played by his rules. Never score without acknowledging a teammate. One word of profanity and you're done for the day. Treat your opponents with respect. He believed in a hopelessly out-of-date stuff that never did anything but win championships. No dribbling behind the back or through the legs. There's no need, he'd say. No long hair and no facial hair. They take too long to dry and you could catch cold leaving the gym, he'd say. That one drove his players bonkers. It's always too soon. When you have to leave that condo, go back into the real world. As he shows you to the door, you take one last look around. The framed report cards, his great-grandkids, Boxes of jelly beans peeking out from under the favorite wooden chair, the dozens of pictures of Nellie. He's a little more hunched over than last time. His step's a little smaller. You hope it's not the last time that you see him. I was with him a couple of years ago, and I said to him, Coach, as I'm sitting in his condominium and there are awards and plaques and acknowledgments and trophies, all of these things in his, his little place. And I said, Coach, how would you like to be remembered? And he immediately answered me, and he said, I'd like to be remembered as a man who came as close as possible to being the man that my father was. Wouldn't you have loved to have known his father? What a man he must have been. Whenever you left his place, you'd go down that elevator, walked through the garage, and I had friends with me several times, and, and we'd be walking along after leaving, and they'd have tears in their eyes. <laughs> they'd say, one of the greatest days of my life, after hearing his stories, quote those poems, and talk about Abraham Lincoln and Mother Teresa, I'd say, it's not over yet. We'd go up that driveway, and I'd say, oftentimes, he stands over here at the window or on his patio, and he waves to us, and he says goodbye. He says, thanks for coming, and we'd look there, and there he was, waving, thank you for coming. And I can see him there saying that to us, thank you for coming. Coach, thank you for allowing us into your life. Our coach, our teacher, our mentor, our friend, your father would be very proud 
of the man that you were. We'll never forget you, Coach. Thank you for everything. And what beautiful words. And watching grown men that day hold back tears. More of a coach when he was a coach. And over the years then he became a friend. And my goodness, I can picture them all rolling their eyes as coaches giving them some of the rules. And in the end, they all came home. They all loved coach. And by the way, every ethnic variety, every religious Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to a born-again Christian like well, as you just heard Keith Erickson speak, and wouldn't loved them all the same, black, white, Hispanic, loved them all the same, had the same standard for all of them too, excellence, to be your best, to give your best, and to be great teammates. John Wooden's story, a remarkable story of love, of faith, born on this day in 1910, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 